This New America NYC event took place on October 21st, 2015, and is titled Runaway Capitalism. Is the Uber economy slighting American workers? And features Stephen Hill, Arun Sundararajan, Allison Griswold, and Heidi N. Moore. Stephen Hill, I'm a senior fellow at the New America Foundation. Um, so I've, I've written this book. Um, you know, uh, I really wanted to write a book that helped us to understand what's at stake here. We're, we're transitioning to a much more tech-driven society and economy than we've ever known um, in, 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 in history. And we really have to get this right. You know, my, my great fear as I wrote this book, and I mean, I, f I found things that I didn't know, even though I follow these things a lot. My great fear is that we're going to look back 20 years from now and we're gonna say, wow, we did not get that right. We did not put the right rules around the type of technology that's coming down the pike, uh, you know, uh, what I call it, at, uh, at, at a steamroller Indy 500 speed, Indy 500 speed. That's what we're looking at with a lot of these technologies. So in the book, I, I look at um, the gig economy, share economy, Uber, Airbnb, and all these such things, but also a little bit about robots and uh, automation and things like just-in-time scheduling, where they can use algorithms now to, to precisely schedule people and, and, and at, at peak demand, and that way they don't need to have so many workers coming in, and workers don't even know their schedule sometimes from day to day. Um, I, you know, I was really looking at the impact of this technology on jobs and the labor force going forward, and trying to assess where, where is this headed? Because there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of people worried about, the, 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 uh, you know, some of you might have seen the Oxford University study saying 47% of U.S. jobs um, are, are subject to elimination by automation. Other people are saying, no, that's, it's not going to be that bad, and besides, you know, the new automation will create new jobs. So there's a lot of back and forth going on right now. And so I really, I really tried to assess, uh, you know, what's, what, what's, what's good about this technology and what could be very problematic. Um, in the book, I interviewed a lot of people. Uh, you'll meet people like Chris Young, uh, an auto worker in Smyrna, Tennessee for the Nissan auto plant. Works right next, door, next to all the other auto workers um, who wear the Nissan shirt. He doesn't get to because he doesn't work for Nissan. Even though he does the exact same job, he works for a contractor. And he gets half the pay. He gets very little in the way of safety net, no job security. Um, You'll uh, meet other people like, um, you know, uh, you might remember the airline pilot Sully Sullenberger landed his plane on the uh, Hudson River, a national hero. And a month later, he was testifying before Congress about um, what's happening to the pilot, uh, to airline pilots and their, their occupation and what's happening to that industry. I mean, how many people here know that 50% of the flights flo flown in the United States are by regional airlines? Not... United, not Continental, not the American, not the big airlines, but these regional airlines, and they partner with them. So you'll see on your ticket, you know, Continental Airlines doing business as, and the name of the regional airline. Fifty percent of the flights flown are from these regional airlines, and those pilots, some of those pilots are making less money than your ca taxi cab driver. Um, the, the, the one flight, Continental Airline flight, a couple years ago that crashed uh, here in New York, and, uh, and everyone on board was killed. The... Um, smashed into a house, some of the people in the house were killed. One of the pilots actually lived in Seattle, even though it took off from New Jersey. 
uh, she had held a second job working in a coffee shop because she needed to make the money because being a pilot didn't pay enough. And uh, when she and she had to commute from Seattle in order to, to the takeoff point for any of the f flights that she flew. So she commuted from Seattle to New Jersey for this flight. She had to take a red eye because she uh, that was the only flight she could get. And you can hear her yawning on the recorder when the when the, um, the you know after the after the crash occurred and they found it in the, the recorder and the debris. So there's a lot of downgrading of jobs that's going on. It's not just you know the low end of the, of the spectrum in terms of jobs and occupations. It's a lot of jobs across industries, across occupations. Um, you know, um, a lot of, some of you may have heard about the Google buses and, uh, and Facebook buses in San Francisco. They block the streets and they take all the tech workers down to Silicon Valley. What you don't hear much is about the drivers themselves. They don't work for Google or Facebook. They work for a contractor. And they start at 5.30 in the morning, and they end at 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And how do they get away? Because the federal law says you can only work a 16-hour day. Well, the, the contractors tell the drivers, you have to take four or five hours off in the middle of your day. And, and, and you're not allowed to go and get another job during that four or five hours. Um, and you, uh, you know, a lot of them, the drivers live too far away in order to go home during that time, so they have to hang out in the parking lot. And the pay is lousy, there's pr practically no uh, health benefits. They're practically indentured servants to you know, the lords of Silicon Valley by driving their workers here and there while they're treated so poorly. So these are, you know, I mean, I could go into example after example of this type of thing. And then we get to the gig and sharing economy. So you have to see the gig and the sharing economy in the context of what's happening to the rest of, of the economy, and what's happening to jobs. With the gig and the sharing economy, um, you know, you have jobs like Uber, uh, where, you know, they'll tell you, oh, we, made, we've created 163,000 jobs in, um, in, uh, of, of Uber drivers. Well, what kind of jobs are these? Uber's own numbers, and, you know, let's be clear, I think we can trust Uber's numbers about as much as you can trust China's and Greece's, because they've shown uh, on numerous occasions they play fast and loose with the facts. But even so, so you can figure that whatever numbers they release are the best that they have. Um, their numbers say that of these 163,000 drivers, 80% of them are part-time. About half of them are 15 hours or less, and about half last a year on the platform and then they leave. So basically you're talking about a temporary part-time job. And for some people that flexibility, uh, they like the flexibility. But a lot of the drivers I talk to, you get very different responses if you talk to them three months into their, their gig or if you talk to them nine months or a year after. After you've gone, been with uh, Uber for about a year and you've been through several of their pay cuts, you know, just you wake up one morning you get to drive, you turn on your app and you discover your pay has been cut by 25, 30%. Or you discover that, um, you know, the, the amount that they're going to take uh, of each fare has gone up. Uber first started, they took 5%. Now they're up to 25 in San Francisco, 30% for certain types of uh, uh, services. Um, so, you know, these are not jobs that, um, that we can really count on in, in any real way to build an economy on. We have to be clear on that. They might be okay for some workers sometimes, um, you know, and, and certainly they're providing a service and Uber, what it has going for it is that the main competitor taxi, everyone acknowledges is horrible. So when your competitor is horrible, the bar is pretty low in terms of what you have to uh, try and do. Um, so 
you know, other, other um, uh, sharing economy companies like TaskRabbit and Elance Upwork, um, what they're doing, they're labor brokerages where you can sign up and uh, to, uh, to, you know, to, um, to work on their platform and get a job, a, a chore or whatever, or you might be a graphic designer, you can sign up and get these sorts of things. But with Upwork, for example, you're competing against people in the Philippines, in Thailand, um, in India, you know, because any a lot of these are jobs where you, the person doesn't need to be present anywhere. They can do it wherever they want, and then they, then they can email it to you or put it on Dropbox or whatever. So these sorts of jobs are basically making developed world workers compete against developing world workers. Um, and the wages, I mean, you can go on their website and look at the different occupations. You can see for a graphic designer, someone in Thailand is, is charging 2 or $3 an hour. Someone in the United States, Europe, or Canada is charging $40 an hour. Well, that's just a race to the bottom at that point. I mean, I mean clearly, if the person is, if, if they're competent, you're going to go with the cheaper labor. So, so these, are, these kind of online auctions, which is basically what they are, where the, the job goes to the lowest bidder, I mean, where does that lead? So, should I stop there? I, I think that there's... Let me say one, one other thing. And here's the other thing that's uh, about sharing gig economy that we have to be clear on. Because, um, you know, it, the, the usual... Uh, the types of jobs we've had for many years is where you're working for a single employer and you are, um, you know, you get your benefits from that employer and, you know, you're working for that employer and you show up to work and you're on the clock, you know, from whether it's nine to five or eight to four or whatever it is, you know, times you have meetings with your coworkers are being paid, times standing around the water cooler talking with your coworkers, and sometimes, you know, you're BSing, but other times you're spinning out creative ideas. That's all paid time. In the, in the traditional sort of job. In the gig economy, that all goes away. You're only getting paid for the time you're doing that specific task. Um, you're not getting paid for looking for the next task, the next gig. You're not getting paid for uh, any sort of training. You're not getting paid for a whole host of things. I mean, it would be as if, um, you know, who we, I, I use different quarterbacks example. We'll say Eli Manning. Everyone know who he is? Quarterback for the Giants. It would be as if he gets paid only when he throws a touchdown pass, right? Or it would be as if a chef only gets paid by the meal. Let's it's, delve it's, into that. It's piecework. It's yeah. just piecework. And so this is a profound transformation in what we call a job. And I, we have to be really clear when people are saying, it gives me more flexibility. Or I mean, oftentimes that term is coming from the industry themselves saying, we give our, our workers more flexibility. The flip side of that is that flexibility often means low pay, no job security, and you're constantly on the, on the hunt for the next job um, in a way that you know, is just, again, another race to the bottom. So I think that's, that's an excellent summary of the book, um, which I've read and which is, which is great, which tackles a lot of those issues about you know, kind of the downside of the gig economy for workers, which we're going to talk about, as well as for consumers. Um, now, I know, Arun, that you have a slightly different perspective on this, right? Um, do you want to talk a little bit about when you hear people talk about the sharing economy and the troubles with it? From your research and from your experience, how do you like to respond to that? Well, um, I, mean, I think Stephen sort of ended with, almost ended with a question, which is, um, where does this go from here, right? I mean, when you've got... Um, <clears throat> uh, labor market platforms where there's uh, competition potentially from other countries, um, where you've got um, a wide variety of alternatives to having a full-time job, 
and um, where fundamentally, I mean, like, you know, Uber and TaskRabbit are sort of like the tip of the iceberg in some sense. I think that Airbnb and Etsy are um, more compelling examples of what's to come because um, they are fundamentally creating a way for <clears throat> providing things that used to require a company with full-time employees. Um, now you've got a million and a half Airbnb hosts who are essentially providing short-term accommodation for money at the scale that a sort of a large hotel chain will. I mean, Airbnb last summer or this summer was on many days the largest hotel chain in the world in terms of like number of people staying in an Airbnb every night. Um, Etsy has a million and a half sellers. And, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the picture that um, of the person's life that is sort of um, painted through um, a platform like Airbnb or a platform like Etsy is, is sort of quite different from the picture of a worker's life through a platform like Sparefile that I know you've written about, which is sort of doing sort of minute micro tasks like tagging images like in your spare time. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of um, data points um, from my research and from sort of like, you know, what the federal government has, has found. Um, I've been monitoring uh, wage rates um, on online labor marketplaces for like, you know, through, through this year. Um, looking at them on a sort of a geography specific basis. So I look at wage rates in New York and Phoenix and San Francisco and LA um, <clears throat> and comparing them to uh, the average wage rate for that particular profession. Like, you know, there are the popular professions include graphic design and um, like, you know, copy editing and, um, you know, event management, plumbing, being an electrician, being a carpenter, being like, you know, sort of a, you know, providing construction. <clears throat> and uh, I've noticed an interesting pattern. Um, there's a certain category of jobs for which um, uh, online wage rates are lower than the national averages, the geography specific. So I'm comparing how much does a electrician in New York get paid compared to the average hourly wage for an electrician in New York. And there are others for which it's higher. And what separates the two is um, <clears throat> the set of jobs for which you actually have to be physically co-located with the customer. You see an increase in wage rates relative to the national averages. Um, the set of jobs for which you could be anywhere in the world, um, you see a dip, but it's not, it's not drastic. It's um, the percentage differences on average are um, 10, 15, 20%. So I think the person who's listing a job for $3 an hour from the Philippines isn't really competing with the person who's listing for $40 an hour because the quality levels are likely to be different. Um, you know, it seems like a puzzle. Why would wage rates go up, right? Well, I think that electronic marketplaces can have beneficial effects as well. Um, they separate the people who are doing good work from the people who aren't. As a consequence, they tend to sort of raise the average quality. Um, they invite people to sort of participate when they otherwise wouldn't have. I'm more likely to call a plumber now than I would have been because it's just sort of easy to see how good they are and you got a sense for how, I've, I've never known how much to pay a plumber in the past and now TaskRabbit tells me. Um, I've also sort of looked at a lot of data that the, the GAO, the, sort of from the federal government, um, has collected over the years about uh, the sentiments of um, freelance and self-employed 
and small business owners to their form of employment. And so they're typically sort of, you're trying to understand whether they are doing this because they have to, or whether they're doing this because they want to. And um, in the most recent data I've seen, um, eight out of nine workers of that category say that they would not choose an alternative form of employment, even if given the choice. Um, this doesn't include temp workers, but temp workers are a relatively small fraction of this pool. So my, my point really is that um, there's a risk of a race to the bottom of this sort of like, you know, dystopian sort of disenfranchised drone sort of scurrying around for their next sort of wedge of piecework. But there's also a story of empowerment <clears throat> that's potentially there. A lot of Etsy sellers um, like what they're doing as an alternative to what they used to do. They like the work-life balance. A lot of Lyft drivers I've talked to enjoy the fact that they can switch off, go pick up their kids, you know, like a lot of single parents uh, seem to be on Lyft. Um, you know, this is certainly not sort of across the board, but I think it's important to recognize that we're in, we're sort of in the formative stages of creating new ways of, as I say, organizing economic activity, you know, um, and that's why I brought up Airbnb and Etsy in addition, because Uber is sort of a you know, Uber's not really going to disrupt the taxi industry. Uber's trying to disrupt the auto industry. And uh, that's sort of where the interesting sort of shift in things is going to come, like, you know, uh, down the road when sort of we have autonomous vehicles and, you know, labor gets cut out of the equation to some extent. But, you know, of course, Uber's, you know, sort of like, you know, Uber drivers are not, do not have the best sort of um, compensation in existence. Um, but if you compare them to taxi drivers, um, it's not sort of a big movement one way or the other. Um, if anything, like, you know, in New York, at least Uber drivers tend to be a little better off because they're not paying the $130 a shift. I'm not saying that's a good thing. You know, I mean, like, you know, it might be good to sort of raise the bar, but, you know, um, I think that there are two sides to this story and um, it's not all bad news. So. Well, so I think that goes to kind of what um, Stephen was talking about a little bit, which is you know, looking back, that terror of looking back at this time, right, this inflection point in history, and realizing that we got it wrong. And I think it's very clear that you think we're getting it wrong because we're letting it get out of control, right, that we're not advocating for workers. And you think, it sounds like you think we're getting it wrong because we're not giving enough credit for the workers to make their own choices. Well, I, I think the risk of getting it wrong here is to be too alarmist. Um, I think that it's sort of makes more sense to take a balanced view of the benefits and risks. And I think we all agree, at least most people I talk to agree that there is a, um, there's a huge challenge looming, which is that um, for decades we have funded the social safety net largely through full-time employment. You work for someone full-time and they sort of pay for your safety net, whether it be 401k contributions or health insurance, paid vacations income stability, um, <clears throat> you know, workers' compensation. I mean, the money's coming from somewhere. In the model that we created for the last century, it came from your government employee or your corporate employee. Now we have to figure out where it's going to come from. And if we don't figure that out, it might just sort of slip away. And then all of these, all of these things that we're proud of as a society, like that we, we sort of associate with progress, these sort of improvements may sort of slip away without us noticing. And so the, for me, the, the real issue is how do we create a new funding model for the social safety net and what kind of government action is necessary in order to make sure that it gets funded adequately.
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we'll, we'll get to the point of disruption later on in the discussion as well, um, but, you know, you were talking about how Uber is disrupting the auto industry. It's also disrupting the government, right, in terms of how, what we consider ownership of regulations, what we consider, you know, the ability of the government to impose rules on private industry. And Uber has, you know, their CEO has openly pursued kind of a narrative, we're creating jobs, you know, this is, we're trying to do something bold, and the government is a creature of past generations that's trying to hold us back. And so to that point, you know, Allison, in your coverage, and especially in seeing Uber and how they kind of position themselves, what, what do you think we're getting wrong? Yeah, I'd say... Um there's a risk of really oversimplifying the Uber issue is the main thing I've noticed. Like it's very easy to condemn Uber and say, and, and all the companies and say, there are no benefits, they pay people terribly, we really, this is not a model for the future. Um, or to go the other way and say this, this is the utopic future that we should all pursue. But it's, it's, it's really somewhere in the middle, like, um, like you were saying, there is a lot of hype from Uber about we're creating hundreds of thousands of jobs and it's really beneficial to the economy and you have to look at that and say, are these really jobs when half of them or more are working 10 hours or fewer? On the other hand, a lot of those people want to be working 10 hours or fewer and for them, this isn't a replacement for work, it's a supplement to something else they do and that that's a very positive thing. And Yes, you can go down the line and you can say, like, with the, especially with Uber and Lyft, eventually we have to worry about them being replaced by self-driving cars. But in the present, one of the big visions of Uber and Lyft is this carpooling system where essentially it's not even so much a job, it's just you're going from point A to point B and you pick up someone who's also going from point A to point B and you make 10 bucks and they get a ride that's really cheap and there are fewer cars on the road, and that's a very positive thing, right? Like, because the goal is not to replace either of those people's full-time jobs. The goal is just to make everything more efficient and to help people make some more money. But, but again, that is at odds with the rhetoric around we're creating hundreds of thousands of jobs and we're a huge boon to the economy and that's why your city should bend to our will. Um, Which didn't work for Uber. I mean, they, well, tried, they tried that lobbying method and... Where, it depends where. Yeah, it, it well, works for them a lot of places. It, it does, but they've also started, you know, I kind of want to talk a little bit about sort of the regulatory aspect, which is so necessary for them to be able to do their business. And you see, you know, in Paris, you see French cab drivers rioting, setting cars on fire in the middle of the highway. You know, in Kansas City, um, you saw Uber go toe-to-toe on background checks and essentially lose. Um, you know, here in New York, they managed to win by basically appealing to our love of celebrities. I mean, they, they were not winning against the de Blasio administration, which you could argue, a lot of people argued, was unreasonably saying you can only have so many Ubers on the road. They were going to cap it, and Uber was against that because they're saying, well, the demand is so much higher, why don't you let the customer speak? Well, that was also a crazy, yeah, that, was a, right. that was a crazy initiative by City Hall, I mean. Yeah, it was, yeah. exactly, it was bonkers, but they were still going to lose it until they got a whole bunch of celebrities, including Ashton Kutcher, to start tweeting about it <laughs> as a matter of economic freedom. Um, so I think, yeah. But I, I think that, um, you know, Uber's most powerful weapon in this, um, in this sort of battle for the future of how we regulate certain things is the fact that they have created a compelling product that people love. And I, 
I feel that what has sort of what was playing out over the summer is um you know I've I've had my um you know there's any 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 time a sort of a tech company goes on the offensive um and is trying to capture a market or trying to sort of disrupt regulation um there are some positive things it does there are some other things that you sort of you know you look at it and say well you know maybe that wasn't such a good idea so you know i'm <clears throat> i'm not suggesting that the fact that they have a compelling product necessarily justifies um like you know the stuff that comes with it but you know i think that they're realizing that they've reached the point where um they didn't have to do a great deal um they had to do a great deal less over the summer than they would have 3 years ago because new yorkers love uber and like you know feel like they sort of a lot of them depend on it um i i i see this shift from the taxi and limousine commission or like you know a government agency sort of inspecting hotels um towards um uber or lift doing part of the um the screening the reduction of information asymmetry that we needed the government for in the past because there was nobody else sitting between you and the taxi driver right um <clears throat> it seems to be sort of a natural part of how our society is evolving i mean if you think about it um when you buy digital music now or when you buy a book on your kindle um it's not covered by the usual copyright law sort of division right i mean you have a particular license that you sign and there are certain things you can and can't do with your ebooks um that are governed by what the platform has decided is the right division not the government right i mean i look at google and facebook and you know sort of it it seems like through human history we have given governments monopoly over surveillance and then we've put a system of like you know restrictions in place to make sure that they don't abuse that power now i mean facebook and google just have sort of unrivaled surveillance capability um they're not doing bad things with it but they sure have um <clears throat> they sure have well i'll introduce you to people who've been subject to it um by and large like you know um they're not doing bad things with it um but well they might be enabling Well, let's yeah. hold on. Let's let's get let's get off Google because before yeah, I started I mean, at Mashable, I worked at the Guardian. Of, um, and, you know, I I I, I don't want to <laughs> get Snowden into the Snowden experience was an you know, interesting I, one. I don't I don't want to get into a tussle about like you know whether or not they're doing bad things with it. I mean, that's not my point. My point is that de facto we've decided that we will hand over the surveillance capability to a platform. Um and um so there's there's a progression of like you know in some ways without legal um intervention um society handing over the platforms things that we used to only sort of ask the government to do or rely on the government to do and so i see uber and airbnb taking on a greater role in screening taxi drivers or hotels as sort of a natural part of that progression so here's the question and then i want steven i want you to kind of like answer this right but i want to respond to some yes, of the things that yes, been said it will yes all of that will happen so the um but you know very much to that point are we outsourcing that to uber or is uber taking that role in its own hands due to our own inattention right to who gets to create the laws they created the company that's true yeah. but again we've worked on a system for a long time where the government had a sense of ownership over the roads you had to pay tolls you have to pay fees you know you have to get licensed <clears throat> and all of that and it partially pays for the infrastructure but it's also partially part of the kind of social contract and uber is defying that they're saying we don't have to pay that it's how they keep their 
costs low. We don't have to do the background checks. That's how they keep their costs low. They don't have to pay benefits or any of that kind of stuff. And while that may upend the corporate model, it kind of gets into the issue of are we going to leave it to a company to just decide how we work as a society? And I guess I'll throw that to you. Yeah, that's certainly a, a one of the, the big questions. Um, you know, what if every corporation decided which laws it was going to follow and whether it was going to pay taxes or not? You know, what, say like a company like DuPont, a chemical company, um, you know, goes around the world creating chemical plants and they, they decide uh, going into India, um, well, we're, we're going to put a chemical plant here, but we're not really going to follow your laws and we're not going to pay taxes. I mean, that's essentially what Uber does all over the world. That's what Airbnb does all over the world. Airbnb is, in, they say, in their numbers, 34,000 cities, and they don't pay taxes in, in really any of these cities, um, you know, in terms of the hotel tax that hotels have to pay in these cities. But it, just responding to a couple of points, I mean, the idea that, that Uber has produced such a compelling product, there's a lot of confusion about what that compelling product is. People think it's their app. And it's so cool that you can watch that app and see your car arriving and wow, how cool that is. That's not what's compelling about Uber. You know, because I'll tell you, if you were sitting there waiting for that Uber car 35, 40 minutes, you wouldn't care that you could follow that car on your app. You're still waiting 35, 40 minutes. What is, what is new about Uber and is compelling is that they've flooded your streets with cars. And they've done it, I mean, you basically have a company that has decided to come in and say, we're going to put as many cars on the streets as we can possibly do. And, I mean, this is kind of, you know, American's fantasy, that you can sort of have your own limo at your own beck and call for a very little amount of money, and it just shows up when you hit the app. This is your big fantasy, right? Um, but let me tell you, there's no way you can have this fantasy come true and not have there be backlashes. For example, at a certain point... There's going to be so many cars on the road that you can't get from point A to B. In San Francisco, where I live, it's already incredibly much harder than it was even a few years ago to get through downtown San Francisco. There are so many, I mean, some of it might be because the economy's picked up, sure, but there are so many ride-sharing cars on the road that, and it doesn't have to be that much. What we're talking about here, whether it's Airbnb and the amount of vacancies in your city, or, Air, or Uber and Lyft and the amount of cars they put on the road. Let's say you have a, a, you know, a geographic area that can take 100 cars comfortably, and you're at 96, okay? So everything is comfortable. You go to 97, 98, 99, things are still comfortable. When you hit 100, suddenly you start knowing, noticing the congestion. You hit 101, 102, 103, it's getting really bad. And you've only increased the number of cars on the road by you know, six or seven. So literally, these, these companies are the straw that's breaking the camel's back. They're the, the, the marginal addition that is creating the problems that we're experiencing. Again, I mean, you, know, you can't put unlimited cars in a road and not expect there's going to be more carbon emissions, there's going to be more pollution. These are all uh, you know, downside effects that you're going to get. And, and you have to keep in mind where the medallion system came from. The medallion system grew to be an abomination. There's no question about it. But if you go back through the history of livery, um, and I have some of this in the book, about 200 years, you can see a pattern where in economic downturns, people jumped into whatever vehicle they have, whether it was a horse-drawn carriage or you know, coaches in, in, uh, in 18th century London and Paris. In fact, Charles I issued an edict saying, we've got to regulate all the people on the road. There's just too many of them. Okay? You see that throughout history. In the Great Depression, a lot of people jumped into their cars to make some money because they didn't have jobs. And, as, and, and it got to such a point that people were crying for a crackdown. New York Times, all these editorials were appearing, saying we, there's too many uh, 
cars doing crazy things, there's rogue drivers doing horrible things to passengers, robbing them and everything. We need some regulation. That's where the medallion system came from. Then you flash forward several decades and suddenly the medallion system becomes an entrenched interest. So certainly Uber and Lyft and them have broken that up and now the taxi companies are getting you know, a bit better in what they do as well. But again, you can't just think you're going to flood your street with cars and not have some, some bad effects. It's just not going to happen. The one other thing I just want to mention, Arun, you mentioned you know, eight out of nine people say they wouldn't switch, they like what they're doing. That's very interesting. I'm not convinced by it because you have to ask those people when they're doing it for three and four years from now. You have to ask them not just three months into it or, or even a year into it. You, you know, find out how it feels when they, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of discussion right now about how millennials love this gig economy, sharing economy. Millennials care more about the types of work they have and not so much about how much money you make and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know what? Every generation at your age felt the same way, okay? The hippies, uh, you know, in the 70s, the 60s, the 80s, every generation when you're young feels that way. But when you start getting into your 30s, and you're 35 and 40, and you watch, start thinking about saving money for retirement, buying a house, that's when you guys in particular are going to notice the differences in the economy between your parents' generation and your generation. The jobs aren't going to be as good. The safety net is going to be is almost removed from under you. You know, this gig economy, will, you'll be running from job to job, showing up at one place, person flaked out on you, too bad, you don't get paid. You know, going to another place and the person, you get there, and they, in addition to what you, you did, they're going to want you to do more. And if you don't do it, they'll give you a bad rating. You know, you're an Uber driver, and someone gets into your car and they say, um, I'm late to the airport, you better get me there on time or I'm going to give you a bad rating. You know, so this rating system that's supposed to be so great about the sharing economy, and Arun, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because I know you've written about it. You know, it's, it's got its own downsides as well. So, you know, there's a lot here that we need to really be real about and not pie in the sky. Allison, what do you think? So which part? <laughs> <laughs> the part that stood out to you. I mean, I think especially, like, you know, in terms of young people and what they're looking for, I will say that young people are looking for money, don't let anyone tell you that they're looking for fulfillment in place of money. It's just that they often can't have the money, so they'll take the fulfillment as the kind of, there was a recent, <laughs> there was a recent study about this, but it also goes to the point where, you know, yes, they may not be happy with it, but this is also, especially the younger generation, is not one that grew up with the same corporate structure or expectations that even Gen X did, right? They grew up with the gig economy. They grew up doing multiple internships. So they don't have a sense of a corporation representing stability. And then even the older generations would argue that the corporate system is broken. While it may provide stability, what it does is that it doesn't give you time for enough time for maternity leave or paternity leave. It doesn't give you enough time off. Our work-life balance is, is off historically. We're working more hours than any other country. And so why would you, you know, there is a, there is a kind of a freedom that is appealing, as you, as you said earlier, Allison, where you can fit it in with other things. So... You know, so I think that, um, I mean, like, let's talk a little bit. We ran a story about Uber ratings, um, and I want to kind of talk about that and the influence that that has, kind of the power that gives over workers. One of my reporters, who is possibly the sweetest person I've ever met, has a very low Uber rating. He has a 4.5. And he, um, which it's on a scale of 5, but no one goes below a 4 for some reason. It's great inflation. It's, uh, he's a passenger. Yeah, so um, anyway, he found out on Valentine's Day next to his girlfriend, and she, 
stopped holding his hand. So, <laughs> so there's clearly a moral aspect to all of this, kind of being judged on the level of service. But does that throw off how people are expected to work? Is it any different from raises and performance reviews and all of that? And does it kind of skew our opinion? Does it give us a false sense of democracy about how these companies work? What do you think? Um, I'll... I, I do think that, um, like, you know, they have to be um, treated with care. Um, I think the design of a review system uh, can be done in a way that has um, positive effects and can be done in a way that sort of makes the worker feel like they're being surveilled. Um, but b before I get to that, um, I, I just wanted to clarify on that eight out of nine. I mean, this was a, a sort of, this, this wasn't one of my surveys, this was something that the federal government did and, you know, they, they do sort of a representative sample of the country. Um, and so the people across a set of like, you know, sort of a range of 10 years and across a range of, and it was a surprising finding to me as well, but it gave me the feeling that, you know, perhaps there are people who I've had the same full-time job for like, you know, my entire career. I mean, I joined NYU straight out of grad school and, you know, I'm speaking about an independent workforce and doing research into it from the sort of the safe confines of my full-time salary job. So um, that's, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I certainly think that there's something empowering about starting your own company and like, you know, sort of working lots of gigs, but there's also something empowering about like, you know, getting a paycheck every, every month. And so um, th there are certainly trade-offs. Um, when I think about review systems, I guess, um, there are two points that come up. One is that um, they are just one piece of a broader safe, a broader set of sort of trust indicators that different platforms are building in. Like, you know, many platforms will connect you to the Facebook or LinkedIn profile of a provider as a way of establishing identity and social capital. Uh, many of them will give you a verified passport or a verified government ID. Um, you know, a popular f signal of quality in Europe. Um, there's a platform in Europe called BlaBlaCar. Um, many of you may have sort of used them, heard of them. They um, allow people who are driving from one city to another uh, to sell seats, empty seats in their cars. Um, it's it's non-profit. You cannot make a profit as a driver. You're allowed um, to recoup your cost. That's it. At this point in time, yeah. Um, you can cover the entire cost of owning your car, but no more. Not just the cost of the trip, but the entire cost of owning your car. Um, and they're, um, you know, they're fascinating because um, they're carrying more people every day than Amtrak. I think in France, they're carrying more people every day than the Eurostar train. And like they've sort of built this infrastructure on the roads and, you know, no more steel and concrete. Um, but an important signal of trust there is like a mobile number or a um, auto club membership. And so, <clears throat> you know, it's, this is partially my fault because I wrote an article about this three years that was um, sort of categorized as reputation versus regulation. You know, when you, when you write op-eds, the one thing you can't choose is the headline. And so this, this is... Uh, That's the fault of, of people like me. Well, you know, I mean, it, it, um, it probably sort of increased the number of people who read the article, but um, I didn't say that the government doesn't need to regulate the sharing economy um, or that reputation will replace regulation. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it's, these review systems are certainly sort of one piece of a broader set of things that are providing quality signals about providers. 
Um, <clears throat> I think they're empowering to customers in certain contexts. They're certainly not a product of the sharing economy. We've been using them since eBay and Amazon. And I think that Yelp has been sort of tremendously empowering to many non-digital businesses and sort of the consumers of many non-digital businesses. But I think what's, <clears throat> there's a danger here of what um, Om Malik uh, sort of a couple of years ago termed uh, data Darwinism, where, um, you know, you might sort of start getting bad ratings and then sort of get into this sort of death spiral where you're not able to recover from them. Um, there may be certain biases in society that cause certain people to be rated more poorly by the general population than others, and this could lead to a different form of exclusion. So these, these are sort of things that I think we need to force the platforms to monitor for and correct. Um, I don't think that the right approach is But how would you force, to, how, if you say force them to do it, force them by what, passing a law? Um, force them by delegating the responsibility of regulating things like this to the platform. Um, and that's where the government comes in, right? I mean, I don't know if, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know if this involves passing a law or creating a new sort that's of regulatory structure. That's the only thing that gives government authority is passing a law, so you'd have to regulate the, the, the business. And so, but there's a difference between setting up a regulatory agency to do all the work and having the government say, here are the things that you need to do, now go out and do them. Here are the sort of the rules that need to be followed. Here are the guidelines or here are the rules. I mean, the US has sort of a long history of different kinds of self-regulatory agencies and, you know, with varying success. I mean, like, you know, financial services has not been too much of a success. Um, nuclear power, on the other hand, has a very successful, like, you know, the INPO is sort of held up as a, a good example of a self-regulatory agency. Um, the cotton industry self-regulates um, successfully. The chemical industry self-regulates unsuccessfully. Um, so I've, I've looked at a number of these, and it seems to me that through history, there have been a wide range of non-governmental entities um, that in parallel with the government have shouldered some of the burden of correcting these market failures, of making sure that like, you know, things are high quality enough. So the idea that just because the government was doing it 20 years ago, um, and now a platform has come along and has said, like, we can do part of this themselves. I mean, and <clears throat> it doesn't mean that they have to sort of fit into these old regulatory boxes or that reviews are going to replace regulations. But it means we've got to look at sort of what is the new technology capable of and what role should the government play that, like, you know, can't be sort of efficiently delegated to the market, right? I mean, so if you want to... Um, you know, there's many people believe that yellow cabs sort of are discriminatory sometimes in picking up passengers. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's not much you can do in terms of monitoring and enforcing the laws that have been passed against this. On the other hand, you could, like, you know, delegate to Uber um, the task of using machine learning algorithms to detect unusual patterns of sort of like, you know, pickup refusal among the drivers in a way that might cause us to sort of correct that problem more effectively mm -hmm. than just simply saying, let's pass a law and be done with it. And this is what I mean by, like, you, we've got to sort of bring these platforms in as partners in doing the government's work. And I, I, I just couldn't disagree more. I mean, but go ahead, Allison, go ahead. So I, I think... See, but then you're disagreeing with the way that American well, let, business let, has let, always let been Allison organized. Let talk and then let me respond, okay? Thank you. Okay. Um. <laughs> This is fascinating. I think 
one of clearly this is clearly the well, issue that's no, go ahead yeah, yeah. so so i, I think filibuster is a filibuster i think what's hard about a lot of these companies especially again the ubers the lifts the task rabbits is you have you have this weird transition ground right where for a long time we've had these rating systems that work very well but where we're rating things so that's why that's why Amazon's rating system works so well, right? Like one of the core promises of Amazon is that you have hundreds of thousands of millions of people who are buying items from sellers and leaving reviews. And that's how you, when you go to buy it, know is this seller a good seller? Is this item a good item? And and that's why you value Amazon over a target that you go in and you don't necessarily know what you're getting. Um and, and it's a thing, so it's kind of impersonal and you're not concretely affecting anyone with how you rate it. Um, and then you have Uber, right, or TaskRabbit, or Handy, which is a cleaning platform. And what you're rating is a service, but you're also rating an individual. And that's why it's so weird, because, because then sort of like subjective personal differences that might cause, say you had a really bad day and you're in a bad mood, and the person showed up five minutes later than they were supposed to be, and normally you would just kind of let it go and leave them five stars, but you're, you're really angry, and so you leave them a two-star review. And suddenly this person that you've left a two-star review maybe is in danger of getting kicked off the platform. They're getting so, so handy, which is this cleaning company, concretely links the ratings of each of its cleaners to their pay scale. And a lot of people don't know this because it's not publicized. So there are a lot of people who, as consumers on the platform, will use the service, they'll leave a rating, they'll think, oh, the person was 15 minutes late and they didn't totally clean the bathroom. That's a three-star job, I'm gonna leave them three stars. And maybe if they knew that by leaving them three stars, this person's suddenly making like $3 less an hour, they would think twice about that, right? Because, because you're not rating a thing, you're rating a person. Um, but I think there's a big gap between what consumers understand about how ratings work on the platforms and then on the other end, the people that are getting rated. And, and what was that, that app that came out last week or two weeks ago? There was a big outcry about it oh, where everyone people. was going to... Right, right. Yeah. And so that's like the extreme example, right? The idea... Let, let's explain. Yeah. Yeah, it may or may not be a hoax, but it's basically a, an app that was created by two Canadian women... Um, I don't know why that's relevant, but they just were, and it kept coming up. Anyway, Canada is a lovely country. I have nothing against it. Um, but they created this app, essentially, that would be a Yelp for people, which, if you've seen John Hughes movies, would basically be that result, where um, people could be rated on their personalities or whatever um, without their consent. They couldn't be taken off the platform as well. That was the initial idea. They pulled it. It looks like they're going to relaunch it, and they're going to have a reality show. Right, and so, and so there was a huge... Right, and there was a huge public outcry and people got really upset and they were like, this is a horrible thing. How could we be doing this? Why would we ever have an app like this? And the, and the people behind it were like, well, it's just a Yelp for people and everyone likes Yelp and it helps us and we know what restaurants are good, so why shouldn't we have it for people? It will help us, we'll know what people are good. And <laughs> it's because that's what it comes down to, right? It's like you're rating an inanimate thing, object service versus you're rating a person with feelings and a life and needs, and the companies that are in the gig economy are squarely in the middle of that, and that's why it's such a tricky issue. Um, I just want to pull back to a bigger picture perspective for a second. Um, 
And, and also, I think we should talk about, there are some solutions um, that I propose in the book, and some of them, Arun is familiar with some of them, and I'm sure he has some interesting thoughts on them. But, I mean, we're talking about ratings, so we're really down in the weeds of, you know, how this gig-slash-sharing economy works. And that's an important discussion, because I think there is a lot of um, just rose-tinted glasses about what these rating systems can do. But pulling back... In looking at the bigger, again, the jobs picture, what's happening to our economy? I'll give you an example. Um, in Philadelphia, there was uh, Merck, a big pharmaceutical company, had a plant. And the, 400 workers producing certain drugs for Merck. They, they sold that company, uh, they sold the plant to another company. Company lays off all 400 workers, hires all 400 back as independent contractors, and they proceed to make the exact same drugs for Merck. So by doing this, as contractors, you're paying these workers about 30% less. Uh, you don't pay for their Medicare, Social Security, health care, paid sick leave, paid vacations, um, you know, disability, any of these sorts of things. That's what we know as a safety net, okay? And, and so the, the big fear is that even beyond the gig and sharing economy is that this safety net for a lot of, you know, for those who are older in the room, you have yours. But as we, as for those who are younger, it's going away. And um, the, the gig and share economy has no plan to put that back in place. In fact, it's, it's exacerbating these sorts of tendencies because it wants to, as I said, turn you into a worker where you're going to be hustling around for your next job and there's no safety net coming uh, from any of these companies. They don't care about that. Uh, you know, if you have a problem, if you get injured on the job, there's no injured workers compensation. There's no unemployment compensation. You know, Lyft drivers and, and Uber drivers who have been injured on the job, company says, Look, you don't work for me. You're, you're the CEO of your own business. That's what they tell them. And as a CEO, you're responsible for yourself. And not me. Don't come to me. Don't come crying to me. Isn't I mean, in San Francisco, in San Francisco there was, um, there was a, a, an Uber driver that took a right-hand turn to a crosswalk on New Year's Eve a couple years ago, creamed a family, killed a six-year-old girl, injured her eight-year-old brother, and injured, badly injured his, the, the girl's mother. And... Um, Uber's immediate reaction was, we have no responsibility for this. This was the driver who was doing this. Even though, you know, and some of you maybe get pizza delivered to your home through a car. That pizza delivery driver has insurance from start to finish of that trip. Uber drivers don't. Uber drivers, uh, someone I know just got hit by a Lyft driver. The Lyft driver was panicked because she knew that she doesn't have commercial insurance and her personal insurance doesn't allow her to drive her car for commercial purposes. Okay, so, I mean, there's just so many details like that that just don't get brought out in some of these discussions. And when you add it all up, um, and, and, and then you get beyond the gig and share economy, and what's happening to this economy, there's great cause to be concerned. Uh, you know, the idea of the disappearance of the New Deal safety net should, should have all of you thinking, like, what the heck is going on here? I, I have to say, as a member of Gen X, I never expected the safety net to last until, until I needed it. But anyways, if you don't but... expect it... Yeah. then you're not going to demand it. And if you don't demand it, they're not going to give it to you. You know, it only came about in 1910s, 20s, and 30s because people demanded it. Yeah. Do you understand well, that? That's, what I'm I'm that's part of my fear that we're going to look back 20 years from now, we're going to realize we got this wrong is because people aren't going to fight for what you're losing. See, uh, what's, what's troubling to me about that... Um, wait, can I just pause for a second? <clears throat> Start thinking about questions after this statement. We'll take questions from the audience. I mean, I'm still curious, and you can sort of get to this after I make my next point as to... You just said that you couldn't disagree with me more, and I'd be interested to know sort of, like, you know, how 
how you disagreed with me so much on self-regulatory organizations. Um, they can't, you, they the can't thing, regulate themselves. Um, I mean, we've already, they've already a, shown that. But that's not what a self-regulatory organization is. It's a sort of, it's something that is non-governmental that is providing oversight to, you know, a set of industry participants. And we've had them for decades and there have been some that have succeeded and there have been some that have failed and we can learn from the mistakes of the ones that have failed. So here's, here's my question then yeah. about that. If Uber won't let anybody else regulate it, why would it let a self-regulatory organization well, regulate Well, you know, I mean, it's... it's and they it's, won't give up their numbers? Well, this, this is a... This is a if, if we reach a point where Uber will not let anybody else regulate it, then that's a failing in government. Um, that's, you know, I mean... Is it? Or is it the will of Travis? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's... I mean, you know, we, we, we can't sort of ascribe sort of, like, you know, sort of extra-governmental or sort of like, you know, superhero powers to to CEOs, I mean, like, you know, there's, there's, there's a, it may mean that there is sort of a larger systemic problem in the way that government works. Well, wait, but, why um, not just follow the law about, about background checks for their drivers? I mean, well, for example, the, 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 the Uber the, background checks are not as good as the taxi industry. And yet they'll tell you they're the best in the industry. They even charge every one of you a dollar for their safe ride checks. And yet the, city, the district attorney of San Francisco and L.A. are suing Uber because their background checks are the FBI. They're the type the FBI has described as, as accurate for uh, uh, up to 45 percent. So, I mean, they, it wouldn't even cost see, them I'm, that I'm much. Not, it would cost I, them an I, extra hundred dollars. No, I have no to commercial finger, ties They don't have any with, fingerprinting. See, I have no commercial ties with Uber or Lyft or Airbnb or any of these platforms. So I'm not here to defend them. Well, but okay, you are defending um, them. I'm not. I'm saying that, that there is I a think... structure that is, um, you know, in between um, having the government do everything and an unregulated market. But the, the point I really wanted to make was on, on sort of like, I wouldn't want to leave this conversation with, you know, we're not doing anything that, um, about the safety net, that, oh my God, our safety net is slipping away and it's, nobody is doing anything. I mean, I've, in the last six months, I've spoken to at least half a dozen sort of like, you know, governmental groups that are thinking very carefully about this, that are, you know, sort of really sort of concerned the way that they should be, but realizing that, you know, the gig economy or the sharing economy isn't sort of an entity that is going to solve the problem. Um, this is why we have government, right? I mean, like, you know, to sort of intervene and put in place solutions that individual actors in the economy may not sort of come up with on their own. Um, that doesn't mean we exclude the individual actors from the solution. I mean, we include them. You know, well, maybe, they won't maybe let we, themselves not be included. Well, right? or we, we, we force them to be included. Like, you know, we've sort of like, you know, we have a history of having companies do things that they wouldn't have done on their own. But we don't say it's all your responsibility. We say that, like, you know, here's what the government's responsibility is. Here's a structure in place for 401k contributions um, that replace sort of pension plans. We didn't say, well, you used to pay pensions to your employees when they retired and you realized that you couldn't afford them. Now keep paying them, otherwise people aren't going to be able to retire with a pension. We said, let's create a new structure because the old model wasn't fundable. So, you know, there's there are two things here. One is that we need a new funding model because the old funding model of your employer pays for it isn't going to be viable when you don't have a full-time employer. And the second thing is that it's a myth to think that government is sitting on its hands and not doing anything and we have to be worried. Um, we have to be sort of vigilant about making sure that we create the safety net. 
But to create the impression somehow that nothing is being done just seems sort of disconnected from the reality that well, I experience. I mean, just from my perspective as an editor and reporter, you know, talk is cheap, right? So yes, they're thinking about it, but nothing's getting done. And just from, I've covered Wall Street for 16 years. I mean, I think the perfect example of how government can really drag its feet, how there are conflicts and how it regulates and how it can be subject to regulatory capture, right? Which, you know, Uber's nowhere near that because the government hates Uber. So there's no capture. Um, but, um, but, but see, it if can San Francisco be there. likes it. But if, yeah, if, 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 there's, if there's regulatory capture, um, I, I feel like, you know, sort of saying that that's the fault of the company rather than the fault of the government agency that gets captured sort of only share. tells half the story. Yeah, right? they can share. We don't have to I choose. I mean, like we can't, we can't control what a profit-seeking company does as much as we can sort of demand that our government do a better job. I guess right. so, but we have more power as market actors than we do as voters, right? Um, all right, well, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Arun and Allison and Stephen. It's a fascinating discussion, and thank you all. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.